Hey y'all, it's Mandy. Before we dive into this week's episode, I just want to take a moment and thank my patrons and premium subscribers who have been here partnering with me to create this work. I love doing this with a team. So if you are interested in being someone who creates this resourcing for people who live in care deserts or who just don't have a safe community to discuss grief, check out the show notes to become a patron of the show. You'll get access to monthly bonus episodes as well as our live chat over on Discord. And I would love to hear from you. Okay, that's all I had to say. Now let's get into this week's episode. Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. You are listening to episode 75, titled Creating a Culture of Care with Nicole Watson. Nicole Watson is a powerhouse of compassion, education, and care. She is a suicide prevention specialist, but she makes clear in this conversation that suicide prevention is not about handing out pamphlets or gaining all of the right materials. As a survivor of suicidal ideation, she is uniquely positioned to educate and support communities on how to shift the atmosphere away from shame and towards support around suicide prevention. This conversation is now required listening for every human because her work is honestly breaking down the walls around suicidal ideation and how you can learn to support your community without fear of the future or what you cannot control. Hey everybody, welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. I am here today with the beautiful Nicole Watson. Good morning, Nicole. How are you? Good morning. I'm amazing. How are you? You are amazing. I'm so glad you said that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I'm doing well. I'm so thrilled to have you here because in the grief world, suicide and suicidal ideation is a conversation that so many of us avoid or give activation warnings because we know the tenderness that goes along with that conversation. Um, Yeah. but it's why I'm so grateful to have you on the show today because your work around education, um, suicide prevention is very close to my heart. I work in suicide postvention in my community, as you may or may not remember. And the back end of supporting a community is equally as important as the front end and prevention conversation. So, um, Thank you for making time to bring your wisdom and your uh, experience to my audience. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Why don't you start really quickly with how you decided this was the pathway for you? Because I know grief work was never my intended pathway when I set out into the world. So what brought you into this really complicated conversation? So... I did not decide. <laughs> um, I am very big on obeying the call that is on my life. I believe that that is where your joy comes. I believe that that is where your provision comes. And I believe that you are your greatest when you are doing exactly what you were sent to this planet to do. Because I believe that we are all sent to this planet. Now, why? I do not know. Because I would <laughs> not have chosen to pay $20 per carton for eggs however (laughs) um you know for me I started out I survived multiple suicide attempts in my younger life Mm -hmm. and one day I just decided to tell my story it was random it was in 2011 I want to say and I just like no it wasn't it was in 2013 
and I just like randomly decided to tell my story. And from there, everybody just started reaching out to me like, oh my God, I felt the same way. I've never had anybody to talk to, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so from there, I just became associated with suicide prevention in a way that I've never had been before. And then it just evolved. So I didn't, you know, really set out to do anything with it. I really just wanted everybody to know that it's okay. It's okay to want to get out of this human experience. But at the same time, there are people who can help you to stay in, you know? So for me, it wasn't a decision. It was just kind of like the decision to share my story just rolled over into me being a lifesaver. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. I think the, the simplicity of recognizing, like, I just need to say this. I need to like feeling that internal pressure. I need to say this story. I don't know why I don't know what for, but I will do it. And that willingness to be vulnerable and, and expose something that many people carry shame over for, um, understandable reasons, because shame is abusive and we use it to abuse people all the time and try to reform who we think they should be. But I love that your understanding of yourself was like, Oh no, that's not even, not even a part of this tale. This is not where we're going here. I love how you also framed it. It's reasonable to need to get out of this human experience. I used to say it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And it that minimizes to me so greatly the, the depth of pain that people are experiencing when their thoughts and their emotions are spiraling for themselves. Now that you're working as a prevention educator in all these beautiful communities, what are some of the myths that you have seen kind of falling away as people are learning more about the reality of ideation and how they can work to create safety for themselves and for their loved ones? So I've seen a lot of shifts specifically in my work. Number one, um, people are more careful with their language. So Mm. instead of saying committed suicide, they're now saying died by suicide or you know, passed away due to suicide. That is very important to me because the committed connotation comes from colonization. Yes. And I think it's important that we dismantle and decolonize our language um, around that. I also have seen a shift in um, church spaces because I often equip pastors to understand that you are not a mental health professional. So there isn't but so much you should ever say or do when it comes to people who struggle with suicidal ideation because you're not a mental health professional. You need to direct people to the people that can help them with their issue. The same way you do with people with cancer, people with diabetes or whatever. Another big shift that I am seeing is um, the whole connotation of people just want attention. And that's something that I have been harping on, if you will, in my trainings. Because we all want attention. That's why we wear different clothes every day. That's why we fix our hair. That's why we make sure our earrings and our necklaces match. That's why we get our nails done. Mm-hmm. If we didn't want attention, we wear the same outfit every day. We look the same every day. We never beautify ourselves. We want people to pay attention to us. Mm-hmm. We blow our horn when a car is about to back into us because we want somebody to pay attention to the fact that we are there. So to demonize people, if you will, for wanting attention. We are born wanting attention. That is a basic need. 
that all human beings have. That's why there are TV shows, because companies want you to pay attention to their programming. Attention is a currency. So to make somebody think that because they are crying out for help, they want attention and that is bad, that is abusive. Because you're telling somebody that existing in the way that they were created to exist is wrong. And so in 2023 specifically, I'm really hitting that hard because it is out of control. And what people don't understand is that that is what contributes to people not saying anything. So then you have people who die by suicide and everybody's like, oh my gosh, she should have said something. To who? Because if I say something and you accuse me of wanting attention, you leave me in a worse state than I already would, than I already was. And so um, that's a big one for me. And then the last shift that I will say is the shift away from thinking that therapy is the default. And that's something that I teach in my work. I am an avid believer in therapy. I go to therapy. I recommend therapy. But therapy does not always solve suicidal ideation. If you are suicidal because you need better opportunities in your life, like a better job, because you can't pay your rent, going to therapy does not help you get a better job. It may help you with your confidence. It may help you with whatever, but it doesn't solve your very real need of, I need income to pay my bills. Mm -hmm. So how about if I connect you with someone who can coach you into a career, who can coach you into getting a job? That solved your problem. So I would rather you spend a month with a career coach to get you a job that has benefits that then allows you to go to therapy than to send you to therapy for you to learn how to cope with not having a job. It doesn't make sense to me. And so to me, I think at the crux of suicide prevention is meeting people where they are and solving the basic need they have in the moment. And we can fix your brain as we go. But the one of my favorite pastors, he used to always say, a hungry man's gospel is food. If my stomach is touching my back, I can't even receive your message. Yeah. Because my body is in a state of, I need something to eat. You know what I'm saying? And so for me, demystifying and decolonizing this whole, it has to be this way, this way, and this way. No, it doesn't. We are unique people with unique needs. So let's sit with the person and see what their unique needs are. And let's address those needs accordingly. Everything you just said makes me want to scream from the rooftops. Nicole is talking sense, people. (laughs) It's time for everyone else to shut up and listen. Because you hit on, especially that last point, I want to touch on all of those shifts that you just talked about. But that the basic needs being met in my grief work, I look at the whole person, body, mind, Mm -hmm. heart, and spirit, and being connectivity to self, others, and their spirituality. And you're exactly right. When someone has a block, we'll just call it a block or a stumbling Mm -hmm. block, really, Mm -hmm. that is preventing them from being cared for on their baseline wellness. There's no way any amount of grief work or programs or consistent tools or anything I provide is going to show up for them when they're basic needs are not being met. It is such a privilege to have access to a mental state where you can function around grief work or around taking care of your mental wellness. And so I think that you're absolutely right too, with the attention piece, we fail to recognize that people are not being needy. They have needs that they deserve to have met. Absolutely. 
the, the idea otherwise is so dismissive. I think in, in a lot of ways it's cultural, right? Yep. Just like you yep. were saying, in a lot of ways, it's, um, it's often spiritual that we feel this is where my intersection of grief hits on is, is the faith communities as well, being very, um, aggressive for me toward mm-hmm. faith communities that are dismissive of people being human and their humanity mm-hmm. being important. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, gosh. And I love that you are reminding faith communities, you are not equipped for this and that's okay. It's actually great. You don't need to be equipped for all. Right, right, right. Oh, okay. I was trying to write an essay the other day about postvention and my brain could not articulate well about Mm -hmm. the value of reframing how we talk about suicide and suicidal ideation, specifically with what you said of committed suicide and assuming that it's a crime or it's a shame driven, um, culpable thing versus getting people to say died by suicide because it is a mental illness to a degree. Mm -hmm. So can you speak on that? How do you help people understand the value of that language change? So I always tell people, nobody says somebody committed cancer. Mm. Nobody says somebody committed diabetes. Nobody says somebody committed Alzheimer's. Nobody says that. What a lot of people don't realize is that um, in the times of slavery, there was a mental illness created called drapetomania. And this was a mental illness that was ascribed to slaves who wanted to run away. So literally, if you were a slave who was owned by another human being, and you wanted to escape being beat within an inch of your life every day and providing free labor to other human beings, you were diagnosed with a mental illness for wanting to be free. And so when I talk about colonization, that is what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for a long time, you know, suicide itself was a crime and, you know, all of that. And I think it's important now that we are in modern times, we understand that it's not a crime to want to escape the pain of your life. It's not a crime to have a literal chemical imbalance in your brain that causes you to to shift from one side to the other side. And to stigmatize and vilify people for very real situations is wrong. It is abusive, it is colonizing, it is insensitive. And it's insensitive because there are so many illnesses in the world and it doesn't happen with any other illness. It is very wrong language. And I think people have said it when I first started out, I said it because I didn't know child. Mm -hmm. But I think as as you learn and you grow, language matters and you don't want to be at a funeral where a a teenager took their life because of bullying and make it seem like they committed a crime when all they knew was that they didn't want to be bullied anymore and they didn't see another alternative and so for me it's just very important that we switch our language and that we show and demonstrate more compassion and care in the things we say Mm. That's so beautiful. So your work, we were talking earlier, is not necessarily surrounding one-on-one relationships with people who are having ideation or who have survived attempts. Are you 
how are you bringing this conversation then to the larger groups? What is it that you present when you are going into schools to work with teenagers or setting up to work with parents or faith communities? How are you, how do you even approach to say, y'all need me for reasons you can't even comprehend? (laughs) So I have a signature speech, a signature training, a signature program that's called Creating a culture of care mm-hmm. it is in a process of even trademark it's the whole thing and what I always tell people is that if you create a culture of care the suicide prevention takes care of itself because when you care about people you want to make sure their needs are met when you care about people you do create a safe space for them to be able to express themselves when you care about people you do connect them to the resources that they need So I would rather go into your organization and shift the culture than to go into your organization and say over 48,000 people died by suicide in 2021 and this is how you prevent it. Because you would first have to be able to, and this is another part about the decolonization, you would first have to be able to identify that the person is suicidal in order to provide for them the specific resources that they need for being suicidal, right? So then that isolates the number of people that you can help to the number of people who are willing to admit that they are suicidal, to the number of people who exhibit the signs. But if I teach you to care about everyone, the people who come in, like um, the, the DJ Twitch, the people who come in every day and make everybody else laugh, the people who come in and make everybody else smile, if I can teach you to care for them, The same way you care for the people who come in and they're sad. The same way you care for the people, the woman who just lost her her husband or the the dad that just lost his son. If I can teach you how to create a culture that teaches everybody how to care for one another and value one another, the suicide prevention is just a byproduct of that. So I approach it from a completely different angle because when you say suicide and suicide prevention, people immediately shut down. And it's like, I don't want to miss the opportunity over a word. So a lot of times people only know that I'm a suicide prevention solutionist because they go to my website or they go to my Twitter or they go to something else. I don't lead with that. I lead with people are jumping off of bridges and buildings. People are overdosing on pills. People, you know, fentanyl was the leading cause of death um, in young adults in 2021. Like there is stuff that is happening. And so for me, suicide isn't just I want to kill myself. Suicide is also I don't want to be alive. It's also I don't want to pursue anything in my life. I want my life to end, whether it's physically, whether it's the type of life that I have, whatever it is. And so I want to be able to shift cultures. And shifting cultures, I believe, is what will save lives. I can give you a pamphlet all day. You can read the stuff. But if it isn't real to you, my old pastor, Pastor Audrey McCarter Hedgepith, she would always say, you got to take the the words on the pages. You got to take the word and you have to make it live. Mm. If you don't make it live, it's not effective. Mm. So if I give you 2,000 stats in a book, and I say, these are the hotlines you call, and this is what you do. If you don't care about people, you're not going to do it. If you think that every time somebody reaches out for help, it's because they want attention, you're not going to go get the book. 
because to you getting the book is paying them attention and you're not supposed to do that. And so culture to me is more important than the tactical part. I can give you the tactical part all day, but you can't employ it if the culture isn't right. I think a lot about parents and the way that we, I'm a parent too. And the way that I will, if I'm not intentional in the way that I think about how I want to solve a problem, I will drive with fear Mm -hmm. and I will lead with anxiety about simply preventing an outcome instead of engaging my incredible depth of curiosity and compassion for a situation that can change how I feel. Cause my daughter gets bullied at school and she is incredible and powerful and fun and loving and all of the wonderful things that an eight-year-old should be. Mm-hmm. And there are times that she'll tell me a story about the way she was treated and being a very forceful person that I am, there'll be days when I think, oh, I should give her some language to use and then tell her, hey, warn them two or three times, but if they put hands, swing back, right? Like I have always said, I will defend you until the sun explodes. You are absolutely justified in protecting yourself. And then there are days when I'm like, well, how did that actually affect you? Because I hear things, I'm like, that's bullying. I will come to the school. That's it. Get everyone on the phone. And there are days like, she's like, "Mm, it didn't really matter because it doesn't change who I am. And I Mm -hmm. realize it's the conversations outside of crisis that make Mm -hmm. all the difference. It's the reminder of her character Mm -hmm. that empowers her to be able to say, well, no, I don't really need a sentence to push back, but I do know that they're wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The idea that, um, we can recognize signs I know has been a really heartbreaking moment for people I've worked with who have loved ones who've died by suicide, uh, often blaming themselves that they didn't notice, or like you said, writing it off because they thought it was just an attention seeking behavior instead of having a, an individual intelligence about their family members or their loved ones, instead of a cultural intelligence that is driven by should. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of it in faith communities as well. We should be strict. We should be restrictive on what they have access to or what we talk about and when and what's appropriate instead of being willing to say the door is actually open, mm-hmm. not just for conversations I'm comfortable with, but for all of them, whether that includes gender identity or sexual orientation or fears that you have about the world around you. So I'm curious how have you seen those conversations with parents shift in, in the work you've done? There's because culturally in my experience in the West, right. That there's Mm -hmm. just this high control behavior management approach to everything we do with our kids. There's not Mm -hmm. enough time that we can make to invest that culture of care. So how are you helping parents recognize the value of throwing away any framework that does not honor that little individual heart. So I think, you know, again, that speaks to colonization, how children are marginalized and how parents are shamed. It's like, if you do not present me a child that has this, 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 and this, you are a bad parent. And I think parents, don't even know how to ask for help 
because they feel like if this is going on with my child, it means I'm bad. And it's like, no, it means your child is a human being on this rock in space in a capitalist system that is not built to support and sustain humanity. And it means that your child is having a human experience that we need to address. That's all it means. Doesn't mean you're terrible. Doesn't mean you are a horrible parent. It means your child is a human being. And just like you wake up some mornings and you don't want to do it, your child doesn't want to do it either. And I tell people all the time, we have to remember children do not have the history that we have. If you get knocked down nine times and you're able to get up every single time, you have a historical record that proves to your brain that when you get knocked down, you can get up again. Mm -hmm. If you are a child, the first time you get knocked down, it does feel like your world is ending. It does feel like the worst thing in the world because that's the worst thing you've ever been through. Yeah. Your first breakup does feel like the worst thing in the world because you don't have a history that's telling your mind that if somebody breaks up with you or you break up with them, life will go on. Your life hasn't went on. So you don't know that. Mm -hmm. And so I always tell parents, stop looking at your child as a kid and look at your child as a person and think about the first time you got laid off for your job from your job. That was the worst thing that ever happened to you. And you did not know what you were going to do. And you felt like your whole world was crashing down on your shoulders. But by the time you get to layoff number seven, you're like, child, I already expected this. I've already been applying because you have a history. Children do not have that. Mm -hmm. And so in my work, I am able to help parents to look at their children, not in the lens, not from the lens or through the lens of colonization but through the lens of humanity. So we're not going to create a line with our children. We're going to create a circle. So it's going to be me and you, but we're going to add these other people in our circle who can help. We're going to add another trusted adult that you can talk to when you don't feel like you can talk to me. We may add a therapist. We may add a mentor. We may add sports. We may add video games. We add these things because I am in this experience with you. I am not here to tell you how to get through it. I'm here to experience it with you because if I experience it with you, I will learn as I teach you. And so the most rewarding part of my work with parents is seeing them break that shell of I have to be this as a parent. And say, no, you need to be a person interacting with another person. Parent is a title. You know what I'm saying? At the end of the day, we are all human beings trying to figure this thing out. And so a lot of my parents come back to me and they're like, you relieve so much of my pressure. You relieve so much of my shame. You help me. to." And I'm like, baby, there are support groups for parents. Go find a group of people that you can be safe saying, I do not want to be a mother today because that's a normal thing. If you say that on social media, people are going to talk about you. They're going to cuss you out. You're going to be the topic of articles and, and all that stuff, right? But there are supportive spaces where you can say, I don't want to be a mama today. I don't want, I don't want to do this. I don't want to cook today. I don't want to deal with 
my child being bullied and now I got to, I don't want, I don't want to figure it out today. I just don't want to. And there are people who will support you in that. And it is not wrong to want to be supported in parenting. Parenting is hard. That's why I am not a parent. Okay. Cause I could not be a parent and be who I am. Mm -hmm. I don't have the capacity. I mm -hmm. don't have the capacity. And I know that, you know, and that's fine, you know, but I think just breaking down that westernized, colonized, in other countries, there are villages. Mm -hmm. People literally live in villages. Mm -hmm. And there are villages because everybody understands that it takes everyone. We're the only people over here who are so individualistic that like it doesn't make sense. It's contrary to the way we were created to be. Yeah. And so introducing that community element to my parents um, has been one of the greatest things I've ever done. Mm. I have a friend, Micah. She's brilliant. I'll connect you guys Thank who you. talks about how we were talking about neurobiology and how you heal. Oh, you heal in community. You need community you to heal because it is community that is hard. And when you are isolated from it, that's what causes trauma and mm -hmm. on so many ways. And I think a lot about this in the context of our online communities, because of COVID, especially we have all built connections online with people like you and I, for example, I don't know that we ever would have met had it not been for the internet. And COVID has given us this like hyper dependence, even more so on social media for interaction, yeah. for connection, which to a degree is brilliant. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like you were saying, you could say something trying to be honest and authentic and true to where you're at and you will be vilified. You will be the Twitter villain of the day immediately yep. because people are hell bent on misunderstanding you. They are also mm -hmm. looking to make sure. And, and I'm, I'm a big, a believer that often what we say is projection, right? If not always. Mm -hmm. We are looking for affirmation of what we say and believe, and we are trying to protect what we say and believe by creating others when they are outside of our paradigm, rather than asking questions and staying curious and building, building out our circle. So with regards to that idea, we think about cyberbullying only as something that children experience. And I know you have a lot to say on that topic. So say whatever you want to about it. But I think too about adults is cyber safety and our willingness to continually expose ourselves to harmful narratives because we, one, might think we're affecting change or two, we think we're being honest and we're being attacked for our identity instead of just recognizing like where there are still benefits of social media, even for adults, there are toxicities that it is not necessary, nor is it building anything positive within you or your life. It's actually destroying you and giving you horrible foundation for what you're trying to create. So let's just finish this with some conversation around how to create safety in an online world, both like for our children. Yes. But as adults, how do we, I mean, you and I are the same generation, right? We have been raised without it and with it. So we have right. such a, a, a different understanding of the internet, whereas like the generation behind us has no framework for it. And the one ahead of us doesn't understand what we're doing on the internet. Right. Yeah. So for me, I think I would say that you have to determine what safety is for you hmm. and you have to have 
some sort of a constitution, some sort of a a guiding compass for how you live your life. You have to know that you thrive when you are safe. And as much as we want to take care of others, if you're not safe, you're not fit for anyone. You know what I'm saying? And nobody knows what makes you feel safe better than you. And so I tell people all the time, child, if I really, really invested in what a lot of people on this little social media stuff say, I would be arguing and fussing and fighting every single day of my life. My gosh. You have to develop the I am not showing up muscle in your body. You have to develop your scroll muscle. You have to be able to say, I'm not willing to put myself in an unsafe environment to prove a point because we live in a generation of people. And when TikTok came out, this really floored me. People will literally post your address, videos of your house, where your children go to school because you did not agree with them about a celebrity that neither one of you know, does not care about you, will never meet you, will never see you. And now your whole life is in danger. People are calling your job, trying to get you fired because you disagreed with user 7366442299 about Cardi B. And so you have to decide, is this worth my safety? Is this worth my peace? Is it worth my sanity? Sometimes it is. There are times when, nope, I'm going to say what I got to say because this needs to be said for the good of the collective. And then there's times where I'm scrolling and I'm like, oh, let me go in the group chat and talk to my friends about this because this is crazy. But I won't say it on social media, you know. And mm -hmm. so I just think it's important for you to decide every day of your life to prioritize your safety, to prioritize your peace, to prioritize the tranquility that you deserve to live in. Mm -hmm. And you may have to adjust your social media every day. One of your one of your favorite people that you follow may jump off the deep end tomorrow because they read this QAnon article and now they think that light bulbs are CIA spy machines and now they don't have light bulbs in their house. Okay, so then you're going to have to mute them because, baby, we don't have time to be like, you know what I'm saying? You uh -huh. You have to individually curate a life that keeps you safe yeah. and only you know how to do that you know what i'm saying you have to look and say how do i want to feel what does support look like for me and then you look at your life does this social media network support me i deactivate my facebook every other month because sometimes i love it and i'll get up there and i'll see everybody and their babies and all this stuff and then i wake up one day and i'm like i have been triggered by facebook 17 times and it is nine o'clock a.m let me deactivate my Facebook. And I take that break yeah. for myself, you know, and nobody can really tell you. It's just something that you learn how to do by listening to yourself and prioritizing your own needs. And even in community, the reason community works is because we know how to prioritize others because we prioritize ourselves. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so prioritizing yourself and your needs is the first and most important step to building your community and your safety.
Yes. I, I love all of that. Especially what you said when you use the word tranquility, mm-hmm. I was thinking about the energetic exchanges that we actually gain from the way we talk to people in person and online, right? Yeah, we have yeah. this decision to make that we can honor a person's existence and their humanity without responding to their nonsense. Mm-hmm. And actually we honor them better by not always responding. I think a lot of times we say, well, no one's going to silence me. I have a voice that deserves to be heard. So I'm going to respond to every single troll or every single inflammatory comment that is spoken, even though the pure intention is to literally bring my energy down by even having said that in the first place. Yep. And it's really difficult when you are someone who is educated and intelligent around a topic and you see someone denigrating that group or that idea or Mm -hmm. undoing the work that you've done, right? It you do, you still have to decide is, do I actually have the ability to affect change here? Or am I going to cause myself a trauma that I don't deserve? That is not Mm -hmm. necessary. I think our kids have no understanding of how to do that. Um, and it's simply because we also do not have the understanding of how to do that. How do we create online safety for our kids when we haven't created it for ourselves yet? That's it. That's it. I want to end with one last thing because I know that it would be really simple to say, okay, cool. If you go create a culture of care in your community, everything's going to be fine. Um, and that's not necessarily true because we have family right. units who have lost a child who to suicide who say, well, we, we loved them. We did everything that we could and we had no idea. I, I know QPR question persuade refer is a really popular online training for people to start recognizing suicidal ideation mm-hmm. and um, to learn how to approach someone that they're worried about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, we also know like nothing is foolproof. So like as your last little nugget of wisdom, what would you say to the parent who doesn't have access to a community? Maybe they are socially isolated. Maybe they're physically isolated. Maybe they're just financially more isolated and struggling with a child that they love or a person, even a friend that they love. How would you help them begin to even ask questions or begin to say, we have to reset this culture of care in our immediate circle so that Mm -hmm. we can, instead of living afraid that they're going to lose that person. In the Love Bridge, I model a culture of care. And one thing that I tell them is that you have a responsibility to create your village if you don't have one. This is your responsibility. And so for me, um, I always tell people there are online support groups. Most of my closest friends I have never seen in my life in, in the physical. They're digital friends. <laughs> and so, you know, there are online support groups that you can go to. Um, you can go to the AFSP, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and you can find support groups there. You can find people there. You can, um, you know, ask questions and get answers to your questions. There are support groups on Facebook. You can go to meetup.com. There are so many people who meet up about so many different things. Some of them are virtual. Some of them are in person. And so I just think it's a matter of, you know, you have to do a little, little elbow work here and there. But there are people who will support you without you having to pay them money, without you having to be, you know, anything. Like even in my community, you um, don't have to like upload your picture or whatever. Because some people, 
they want to be known as Bobo 337. So <laughs> hi, Bobo. You know, I think that there are people for everyone. You know, it is not good for man to, to, to be alone. I think it's a real thing. And I think there are people for everyone. You just have to find them. You have to put in the work and put yourself in the uncomfortable and vulnerable position of finding them. And so if you don't have a local community, I used to tell everybody to just go to church, which I do not tell people that anymore. <laughs> um, if it works for you, then fine, you know, but it don't work for everybody. But um, there are lots of digital and virtual communities available. You can go on Reddit, create a profile and ask a question and nobody in the world will know who you are. And 10 million people will tell you what you should do and so I think leaning into the access that we have affords us the greatest opportunity to really create a community around ourselves I love that you're very clear you are responsible for creating mm -hmm. a community around you because I agree a hundred percent and it can be really easy when we feel like we've been wronged or our community has mm -hmm. left us or maybe not been easy to cultivate um you're a hundred percent right. I used to say the same thing. How do you survive without a church group? And I realized that wasn't actually, it wasn't the faith I was questioning. It was the support circle. It was the group of people willing to show up yep. because they felt they had a connection to me. And mm -hmm. in this season of life, I'm not actively attending an in-person church and it has changed who is willing mm -hmm. to show up for me and who is not. Yeah. And, uh, it's painful. And so you have mm -hmm. to really and we were just talking about this yesterday, you have to decide, we have to decide who, who among us do we need? Do we need 30 mm -hmm. people or do we need three solid people? So it just, it changes everything. Nicole, you're, you're an absolute angel on earth. I Thank am you. a huge fan. Thank you. Even the way you present and articulate this incredibly complex concept is so approachable and invitational. So thank you for making time. I'm going to make thank sure you. that, um, all of your links and everything are in the show notes so people can find you and you are active on Twitter. What is your Twitter handle or, um, any other social media in case someone wants to find you? So my Twitter, my Twitter, Twitter handle is my name, Nicole Watson, N-A-K-O-L-E Watson. That's probably going to be my most active social network this year because meta because we've deactivated facebook yes yeah. <laughs> it's out mm -hmm. all right i love it thank you so much for being here i hope thank you have you. a brilliant rest of your day you too thank you for listening to episode 75 of restorative grief what did i tell you Nicole is compassion embodied, but whew, I realize this may have been an activating conversation to hear, but can I please invite you to reflect on at least one of the shifts she spoke about that might change the way you approach suicide prevention or even the thoughts of suicide concerns in your life. We are the ones positioned to make the greatest impact on our immediate communities, and we are responsible for building that community around us, both for our benefit, to remember that we are not alone, but for the love of others and our communal thriving. If this is your first time listening to the show, thank you 
Thank you to the moon and back for making space in your life for this challenging and necessary conversation. I would love to hear from you about your thoughts on the work and this chat specifically. So please remember to go leave a review wherever you are listening and don't forget to subscribe and consider connecting with me or Nicole, both on Twitter or by becoming a patron of the show itself. You can check out our show notes for links to her own community, the love bridge and all the other incredible resources that Nicole is making available. You won't regret it. I know. And one last thing, as always, please remember the only solution for grief is to do the work of grieving. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thank you.